Bless you, little one. If you're a student, you're dismissed. Uh, Julia, no kidding. Thank you very much. That's lovely. Bless you. Um, welcome. I greet you in the name of my Savior. I'm glad that you are here with us today. Um, let me pray for us one more time. Lord, I am so quick to think that if I'm going to ever have a portion... I'm going to have to create it for myself. And I'm so confident that I have the strength to deal with the troubles that I encounter in life. I know that is wrong and absurd. And yet I believe it most of the time very strongly. I want to be different. I want to trust you. I want to declare and believe and live like you are my portion and my strength. I want that for my life, my wife, my children, my grandson, my church family. I want it for my nation. Lord, that's a God-sized undertaking. But you can do that. And I pray you would, and I pray you'd begin with me, and I pray you'd begin today. And uh, I ask you to speak to us now and give us the ability to understand what you're saying and give us the humility to be open to applying it. And I pray that it would make us different. I pray it would make our relationships different. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You got a copy of the scriptures. Um, you can turn if you want to. If you want to, you can just listen to me. But if you want to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 28. That's um, one of the... Well, you know, you got... Samuels and then the Kings and then you got the Chronicles and it's the second Chronicles and it's near the end well yeah sort of near the end of second Chronicles and this is uh, a book that was written uh, 3,000 years ago give or take um, and it was written about the decline of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah as they walked away from their confidence that God himself was their portion and their strength. And it's the story of the consequences and ramifications that take place in the lives of a nation, a city, a family, and a person when they move away from really believing and living like God is their portion and their strength. And Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, both walk down that road. Um, 
and the kings of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom got increasingly more wicked, more selfish, more prideful, more... Uh, 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 they got less and less like their original king, King David, who was a man after God's own heart and was a man that loved the Lord passionately. And uh, uh, so anyway, we get to a place uh, in Judges chapter 28 where we are learning about a king in the southern kingdom called Ahaz, and we're learning about a, north, a king in the northern kingdom, their neighbors, uh, 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 king Pekah and it's important thing you know before I read this little passage King Pekah of the northern kingdom he was horrible he was one of the he was a horrible selfish evil wicked king and his people in the northern kingdom followed his example hello welcome um but the story's really about uh, their happening in the southern kingdom, and uh, their king was called King Ahaz, and he was also a very evil, wicked king. And we'll we'll look at that in just a second. So, if you want to follow along in Second Chronicles chapter twenty-eight, you can do that. I'm just going to read a few verses. Um, you're gonna I'm going to read this, and you're going to go, "Wow, what a simple little story!" And you're right; it is a simple little story. But it's also got a very, in my opinion, it's got a powerful message to everybody in this room that is involved in serious relationships. Whether it's marriage, or whether it's with your children, or whether it's your dating, or uh, whoever, you, friendships, if you've, got, who, if you've got serious relationships... And especially if you have serious relationships that are struggling. This little passage I'm about to read has really got a word for us. And so I want you to listen, if you will. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 28, I'll start with. It says, because of all the sins of King Ahaz, that was the king of Judah, and his people in Judah, the Lord allowed the king of Aram, that was a neighboring country, to defeat Ahaz, and to take into exile large numbers of their people. The army of Israel also, that was their northern neighbor, the army of Israel also defeated Ahaz and inflicted huge casualties on his army. In one day, Pekah, Israel's king, killed 120,000 of Judah's troops and captured 200,000 of their women and children and took much plunder. And they took them all back to Samaria. That was the capital of Israel. All because Judah had abandoned the Lord. All because the southern kingdom had abandoned the Lord. And here's what I want you to get. But a prophet of the Lord was in Samaria as Israel's army was returning. So you've got this army of Israel. They're evil, wicked people. Okay? But... They have gone down into the southern kingdom and they have conquered their brothers. They've conquered the, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They're brothers. They're, these are aunts, uncles, cousins, moms, dads, grandmas. These are all related to each other, sort of like our civil war. And you had families fighting again. And, and so the army of the northern kingdom marches down into the southern kingdom and they, 
inflict this huge defeat on the army of, of Judah, of the southern kingdom. And the Bible says that this occurred because of the wickedness and the evil of the people in the southern kingdom. And so the, the, the soldiers of the northern kingdom, they take a bunch of plunder and they take a bunch of the people and they herd them all back up to the northern kingdom and their intention is to make them slaves. Okay? I want you to get that. But the prophet of the Lord was in Samaria as Israel's army was returning home with all this plunder and all these slaves from the southern kingdom. And the prophet went and said, The Lord was angry with Judah, with the southern kingdom, and let you defeat them, but you have gone too far, killing them without mercy. And all of heaven is grieved. And now you are planning... To make them your slaves. Here's what the next sentence says. But what about your own sins against the Lord? Read that last sentence one more time. But you've gone too far. Killing these people without mercy. And all of heaven is grieved. And now you're planning to make them. Making them your own family members. Your own relatives. You're planning on making them your slaves. What about your own sins against the Lord, your God? I just read that. Those of you that are reading through the Bible with me, uh, we just finished Second Chronicles. So if you're wondering, well, where did he come up with this chapter? I was just reading through my Bible like I'm supposed to. And I came to 28, and man, the morning I read that, that verse... What, Larry, what about your own sins? That hit me like a freight train. And the thought that ran through my mind is simply this. It is so easy for me to become so indignant and so preoccupied with the sins of others that I lose sight of my own sin. And I am so quick to be merciless with other people when I so desperately desire and need the mercy of God. I can watch TV, Gail, and hear about the actions, the atrocious, inexcusable, unthinkable evils of other people. And they are wrong. And I'm not trying to compare necessarily apples and oranges. But I'm just saying that I can watch the news or listen to a speech or learn about the lives of other people. And I am so quick. To become indignant, to become impassioned about the sins and the wrongs and the failures and the flaws of others. And yet at the same time be so blind or 
I don't know what about my own sin. And I'm so quick to show no mercy to somebody else when I so desperately need mercy myself. I've got a point, a theological point that I want to make to you, and then I've got a practical point that I want to make to you, and that's it. That's what we're going to do today. Okay? My theological point is this. The Bible continually commands us to focus on, to own, and to feel the weight of our own sin and wrong. Let me say it one more time. The Bible continually, and you might say, well, I'm not sure. Are you making a bigger deal out of this than it is? Does it mention it once or twice? I'm not sure it says continually. Well, glad you asked. Let's, let's just see here in just a second. But let me read my point one more time, and then I'll, we'll see if I'm right or wrong. The Bible continually commands us to focus on, to own, and to feel the weight of our own sin and wrong. Now, if you're missing it, if you're not the smartest, you know, person in here, if you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, then you're. I'll, I'll, let me spell it out for you. There's an implication that I'm making here. The Bible rarely. I'm not saying never. Never say never say never. So I'm not saying never, but the Bible rarely tells us or commands us to focus on. Or feel the weight of other people's sin. But it continually commands us to own and feel the weight of our own sin. Now listen to these verses and you, you tell me what you think. Lamentations chapter 3. Why should we... Mere humans complain when we are punished for our own sins. Instead, let us test and examine our ways and our lives and turn back to the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But if we would examine ourselves we wouldn't be judged by the Lord. Now the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the Lord's Supper. Paul is actually telling us in this chapter, one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is that as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you're supposed to stop before you come up here and handle that which represents the blood of Jesus Oh, here it is. And the body of Jesus. That before you handle that which represents the blood in the body of your Savior, you ought to stop. Stop. And think about your life. Examine your life. Is everything good? Is everything okay? Am I walking as I believe God wants me to? Are my relationships good? Is everything, I'm not, am I perfect? No, but as far as I can tell, as I examine my life for the last seven days, since the last time I took the Lord's Supper, I think 
things are, I'm going in the right direction. I'm, I'm living my life the way I believe God wants me to. That's the context. Paul says, before we roar up here, give me some juice and some milk. i got to make it to Patrick's before the tables all fill up. <laughs> Do we take a moment and stop and judge, evaluate, examine our own life so that God doesn't have to? The Holy Spirit's got so many wonderful things He wants to do in our lives. And the last thing He wants to do is to operate in His ministry of conviction. I'm not saying that well, but you know what I'm saying. He will do that. He will convict the fire out of me. And I've gone to bed at night so many times after acting like a rear end of my wife and snapping at her, barking at her, being selfish to her. And then I'll get up the next morning and I'll open my Bible and I'll try to read and I'll try to pray. And the whole time the Holy Spirit's going, Larry, did you treat your wife the way you were supposed to last night? I'm trying to pretend and ignore and, well, she was mean first and blah, blah, blah. All that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, he, he will so tenderly rebuke and convict and scold and empower me if I'll let him to go and make things right. But that's not what he wants to do. That's, he'll do that, but I don't believe, oh goody, I get to scold the fire out of Larry Ray this morning. That's not what he wants to do. That's not what he wants to do. What he would like is for last night, before I close my eyes, for me to say, lean over and look at my wife and go, you know, baby, I was wrong a little while ago. I acted like a rear end and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Then the next morning, he's got a whole other ministry that he wants to do in my life. That's one of the reasons for the Lord's Supper. If we would examine ourselves, we wouldn't be judged by God. 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test your own lives. Galatians chapter 6, pay attention to your own life and then you will get the satisfaction of a life well lived. Romans chapter 14. This goes on and on and on. Romans 14. Who are you, Larry Ray, to judge someone else's servant? Their own master will judge them and they're going to stand for God is at work in their lives. Why do you judge your brother or your sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? We will all stand before God and give an account someday. Stop condemning others. Instead, focus on not being a stumbling block yourself in the lives of other people. Notice how the, do you see the, the theme running through these? Get your eyes off of other people's wrong and look in the mirror. Matthew chapter 7. Judge not, Jesus says, and you won't be judged. You will be treated as you treat others. The bar you use to judge is the bar that you will be judged by. 
Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you say, let me remove the speck in your eye, friend, when you can't see the log in your own, you hypocrite? First deal with the log in your own eye and you'll be able to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I find it very significant. I tried to look up every list I could. Mark chapter 7, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Galatians chapter 5, and Revelation 21. I'm sure there's others that I didn't mention. That's the ones I looked up. In all those chapters... God lists sins. Those are the Bible's sin list. And ooh, they mention some horrible sins. Me and some fellows are studying Romans, and we, we're, we're in Romans 1 and 2, and ooh, there's some tough sins in these lists. In these lists, the Bible includes things like idolatry, witchcraft, murder, sexual perversion, and adultery. Ooh, those are bad sins, aren't they? Ooh, that's, that's serious business. But do you know in every one of those lists, in those very same lists, the Bible mixes in the sins of lying, being envious, being fearful, getting angry, being selfish, being prideful, lusting, quarreling, and complaining. What? You mean in the same list that includes sexual perversion and murder and idolatry and witchcraft? You have sins like telling a lie, being envious, getting angry, being fearful, and complaining? Hmm. Romans chapter 2. You condemn others, but you're just as bad, and you have no excuse. The background of that is, is that he's saying you're judging other people that don't even know God, and you have no excuse because you do. You know God. They don't, and you're judging and condemning them. When you say they are wicked and deserve to be punished, you're really condemning yourself. For you who judge others do similar wicked things. And we know that God is just and will punish everyone who does wickedness. Since you judge others for doing wicked things, why do you think that you can avoid God's judgment when you do wicked things too? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What gives you the right to judge others? What do you have good, is the implication, what do you have good in your life that God hasn't given you? And if all you have that's good is a gift from God, why do you boast like it's not a gift? Matthew chapter 22. The reason I included this one, I'll tell you right after I read it. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second greatest is equally important. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Put that in there because you know every once in a while I can get into a place where I start thinking I'm way better than Chuck. I pray more than Chuck. I read the Bible more than Chuck. Give more money to the poor than Chuck. I really don't know that. I'm, I'm making that up. I'm just saying um, I'm, I'm, I'm a way sweeter husband than Chuck. Um, I, I help more old ladies across the street than Chuck. I'm a lot better than you. How am I doing on loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength? I don't. I don't love Him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. On my best day, I don't love Him like that. And to add insult to injury, how am I doing on loving my neighbor as myself? Truthfully, most of the time, the only reason I love anybody is because they have done good to me first. Main reason I love most of you is because you've shown me goodness first. James chapter 4. Remember that it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Romans 13. Owe no one anything except your obligation to love them. If you love other people, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Love does no wrong to others. Proverbs chapter 20. The wisest man that ever lived said, Who can say that I have cleansed my heart? And I am pure and free from sin. Matthew 23. Jesus said. The scribes and the Pharisees teach you God's law. So you should obey what they tell you. But don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable demands. But they will not lift a finger to ease their burden. And lastly, Hebrews chapter 3. Make sure your own heart isn't full of evil and unbelief turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other daily while it's still today, while there's still time, so that none of you will be deceived by your sin and the hardness of your heart against God. Even God's favorites. Even God, and I look around this room. Those of you that I know, man, I know some of you, y'all are God's favorites. You love God. You seek after God. You try to serve God. I mean that sincerely. And God's so pleased. He's so blessed. But even be absolutely blind to their own sin and impassioned enraged consumed with the sins of others 
Let me give you an example. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. David, who had just committed adultery and murder. David is enraged. And he says, as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing, any man that would, that would take a little lamb from a family, any man that would rob a family of a little pet lamb, that person deserves to die. He must repay that family fourfold for what he stole. And he has had absolutely no mercy. Nathan said, David, you're the man. You're the one that did this. God says, for I anointed you the king of Israel and I saved you from King Saul. Anybody in here love the Lord like David? Raise your hand if you're on par with King David. And yet, God's favorites at times can be so consumed with the sin of others and so blind to their own sin. That's my theological point. Now let me make the application. Rare is the day that I don't have a couple come to see me to work on their marriage. Different faces, different names, different situations, different problems. And they come to my house and they sit out on my couch and they start telling me their story. And I listen. I'm a good listener, believe it or not. For I'm even, I mean, I'm a ray and I can still, I'm a good listener. But while I'm listening, just so you know, in case you ever come and see me, if you're wondering why you're telling me your story, what's he thinking about? You want to know? What I'm thinking about is how I can get both of those people to come to a place where they each see their own contribution to the problems and the pain and the failure in their marriage. And how can I bring them to a place where they don't just see their own wrong, but they'll own it and they'll look the other person in the face and go, I've screwed this marriage up just as badly as you. And I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? But see, in most situations, people come and somebody, metaphorically, has got the ear of the other one and they're dragging them in. Sit down. Preacher, set him straight. Rebuke him in the name of God. Let's all focus on his sin or hers. Most time it's the his. But anyway, nonetheless, uh, um, uh, let's, let's all rebuke him. And most of the time, in fact, should I say, 100% of the time, he is a rat. He's a selfish, mean-spirited, irritable jerk. Some of the time. 
who has wronged his mate, grieved and hurt his mate in many ways. The problem is she is too. And the reason I know that is because I'm married to a really great lady. But she would be quick to tell you that she's that way too. And so is her husband. Getting people to a place in marriage counseling where they will both lay down their consuming passion to focus on the wrong and the pain and the failure of their mate and to turn their eyes upon their own brokenness, their own failure, their own sin, and to see it and to own it and to confess it to their mate, I'm telling you, that is my goal, that is my plan, and most of the time I fail miserably. But every once in a while, every once in a while, the Spirit of God will invade that little room and I can see it in their faces. They get it. They sit. And only the Spirit of God can do it. Only a, the Spirit of humility and wisdom can invade our hearts and open our eyes and show us, oh my gosh, I peed in this pot of soup just like my mate has. I've spit in this drink just like my mate has. I've contributed and I'm wrong and I've caused pain and I'm sorry for it. Would you forgive me? One of my favorite books, I've read it, I don't know how many times. There's a little book called Blue Light Jazz by Donald Miller. If you've never read it, I give you permission to break the speed limit. And well, you don't really go to buy books anymore. You have to go to go on Amazon or wherever you go to buy a book nowadays and buy the little book Blue Light Jazz because it it is a book that I've read. I've read several thousand books. It is a book that changed my life. And in this book, it's a story of a man named Donald, true story, about a man named Donald Miller and a couple of his buddies. And they get saved and they get all fired up about the Lord and um, they go out to a college that she, my wife has sent some students to. Uh, they go out to a college out on the West Coast. And it is, by reputation, the most wild, liberal college uh, uh, around they party and live crazy and these, these this impact this place this village and they're, they're praying God use us to impact this place this dark place uh, for your glory Let, use us to shine your light let us proclaim your love they're, they're praying they're, they're doing different things on the campus 
to try to show these, these, these wild, crazy people how much God loves them and that He's real. And, and they, they want so much. They have the praying. They have the serving. They have the desire. They want to impact this campus with the love and the light and the joy and the holiness of God. And everything they try, they fail. Zero impact. Like some of you are trying with your children. Like some of you are trying with your mate. I've done everything. I've done everything. and Nothing works. And the college every year has a sort of a, it's not Mardi Gras, but it's like a Mardi Gras at their campus. And for a weekend, they just let the kids do what they want. Anything you want, you can do it for a whole weekend, once a year. And so, they're getting ready for this thing, and these guys, Donald Miller and his buddies, they said, let's set up a tent right in the middle of campus. And on the little tent, let's write the, on a sign, confession booth, sins confessed here. Now you think about that. Right in the middle of Mardi Gras, having a little tent that says, Confession booth, sins confessed here. They're so young and stupid, they don't know any better than to realize that is a failure before you begin. Don't do that. That won't work. But they did it. That night, everybody's acting crazy and drunken skunks and stoned out of their minds. And nobody's coming. People are coming by, but they hear them outside the tent laughing and mocking and making fun and blah, blah, you know. But all of a sudden, some boys, about half drunk, come open the flap and come in the tent. What y'all doing in here? What's this confession booth deal? Well, we thought you know, it being this weekend and all the craziness going on, that maybe somebody would like a place where they could come and confessions of sins could be heard. Are you crazy? But these, you know, they go on and on and on. It's a long story, a lot of mocking and ridicule and carrying on. But finally, one of the boys sits down while his buddies are behind him. And he says, so you think that you're better than us and that we ought to come in here and confess our wickedness to you. Is that right? And Donald Miller with tears coming down his cheek. says, oh no. That's not what we meant at all. We wanted you to come in here and sit down. And we wanted to confess our sins to you. And that's exactly what Donald Miller did. He looked these crazy, stoned infidels in the face. And, and he starts just listing his sins, his failures, his wrongs, his weaknesses. And at the end, it touched that boy and those boys behind him so much that God began a work in that college. My point is simple, guys. We pray. We tell, we rebuke, we try, 
strategize and plot and scheme trying to get people to do right. We rebuke, we scold, take them to conferences, take them to counselors. And I'm not saying all that's not something. Wonder what could happen. Wonder what God might do if sometime rather than seeing my wife not live the perfect life that I expect her to live, rather than focusing on her inconsistencies and weaknesses and failures, rather than reminding her of her history of not being the greatest wife that I expected her to be and that I deserve to have. Wonder what might happen if I looked my wife, looked my daughter, looked my grandson, looked my friend, looked my co-worker, looked my neighbor in the face, and I said, hey, I'm sorry that I haven't been the friend, the parent, the mate, the co-worker, the neighbor. I've done wrong. You're not saying that the other person hadn't done wrong. You're not saying that the, that, that you're not excusing you're not ignoring. You're not diminishing. You're not writing off the wrong of the other person. You haven't mentioned their wrong. But wonder what might could happen if rather than being so quick to judge and scold and condemn another person who you and I are aggravated at. What if we first looked him in the face in all seriousness and said, I'm sorry. I've done wrong and I want to tell you some of the things that I've done wrong. Just a but I know I'm as broken as you, maybe more. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about that pharisaical, hypocritical, arrogant, holier than thou type wordage like now I know I'm not perfect either I know I, I've made mistakes I haven't always been the person I need to be if my mom wasn't here I would really tell you what that <laughs> is let's just say that it's poo poo let's just say it's poo poo all that does is wound and offend and alienate further. I'm talking about looking somebody in the face and saying, I've been selfish. I've neglected you. I've ignored you. I've gossiped. I've slandered. I've judged. I've condemned. I, who, can, who can say? Who can say? Every time I've had an opportunity to minister to the poor, like Jesus commands me to, I've done that. Every time that God's told me to forgive, I've forgiven. Every time God's told me to do what I'm supposed to, I've obeyed. Who can live up to that? But we act as if we're maybe not an A plus, but we're a B plus or an A minus. We're giving it a run for our money. 
Okay. James, the half-brother of Jesus, Peter, Jesus' best friend, and the wisest man, the Bible says, that ever lived, King Solomon, all quoted the same statement. Three times. They all quoted the same statement. God gives grace, or God actually pours grace into situations where somebody will humble themselves. Humble yourself. Owning your own flaws, your own mistakes, your own irritability, your own meanness, your own selfishness, your own fear, your own anger, your own coldness, your own inconsistencies and unfaithfulness. That's humbling yourself. And when God sees that, not you're a rat, let me tell you all the things you're doing wrong, but me owning my own. When God sees that, the Bible says that God says, oh, I've got a big bucket of grace. I'm going to pour it right smack dab in the middle of that situation on the person doing the humbling themselves, on the person that's hearing the humility of the other one, and on the lives of everybody around it. I'll pour, I'll pour grace right in the middle of any situation where I see humility. That's why what is it? What's that, uh, in James chapter 5, James says, Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. I'm so quick. I want to confess your sins. And then I don't experience any healing. I'm the same selfish rear end of a jerk I was yesterday. But if I'll confess my sins to those that I'm in conflict with, those that I'm disappointed with, those that are not living like I think they should, if I'll confess my sins, then I can experience healing. And isn't that what we all want? Isn't that why we're here today? I sure would like to be healed. I sure would like to stop hating. Like you talked about up here a minute ago, Gail. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11? Examine your own life and judge your own sin before you take the Lord's Supper. That's the context. And then God will say, tomorrow morning, ooh, I've got a new, I'd like to move on by that. I've been doing that rebuking and convicting. Ooh, I'd like to move on by that. Because i got other stuff I'd rather be doing. Wouldn't you rather experience the other stuff? So let's take a moment. Before we roar up here and take that which represents the broken body of Jesus.
And the blood that poured out of his face and his side and his hands and his feet. And let's stop and evaluate our own lives. And ask God to show us what we ought to do next. Rather than sitting here like so many of us, like I do so often and go, God, please speak to Morgan. Morgan really needs to hear this sermon today. Lord, please speak to Morgan. Wonder if God's saying, Larry, I really was wanting to speak to you today. Okay? Um, y'all come up here and help me. Y'all haven't done anything important this week, so come on. Y'all come up here. You stand there and you stand there, Jane. Right there, brother. Yeah, thank you. You're going to help me serve the Lord's Supper. I um, I don't want the Spirit of God to let people leave here feeling rebuked and scolded. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would let you and I leave here today with hope. Hope that our relationships can be changed and bettered and healed. And that I can play a role in that. I can play a role in that if I'm willing to humble myself and focus on and own and confess and ask for forgiveness for my own sin rather than being consumed with the sins of others. Okay? When you feel like it's time, you come and you eat and you drink You remember what the Lord Jesus did for you and did for me on the cross. Give thanks. Give thanks. And we'll end the service together.